This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. This is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. This week, three guests, three interesting guests. I think you will enjoy this. First up, the New York Times writer, Ken Belson, who covers the NFL for that media outlet. Um, he has been uh, writing with Catherine Rosman of the New York Times on the 650,000 emails the NFL is reported to be looking at regarding the workplace conduct with the Washington football team. You have since seen Ken and others write about uh, John Gruden, now the former coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, as well as Jeff Pash's role in the story, uh, passing along uh, nearly naked photos of former Washington cheerleaders. And so we get into everything about that story. Um you know, what might be next in this. Obviously, Ken and many other reporters are continuing to work on it, but a pretty fascinating just conversation about Ken's job, which is very unique when it comes to covering the NFL and uh, and how he went about uh, this investigation. Uh, so Ken Belson, to start, he's followed by Jamel Hill, of course, a contributing writer for The Atlantic, host of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify, creative advisor for Meadowlark Media, obviously a longtime former ESPNer. Uh, we get into Jamel's uh, Jamel's sort of uh, perspective of this story, uh, how cynical we should be of the NFL, um, as she wrote uh, that the NFL is full of John Gruden's and what that means. We also got into whether we thought ESPN would be aggressive on this particular story or not, and then the uh, revelations about Adam Schefter and his email to uh, Bruce Allen. Um, which Schefter has since apologized for. Last up, Grant Wall, my uh, my old colleague from Sports Illustrated, but now uh, doing really, really interesting things on Substack. He has the Football with Grant Wall newsletter, uh, which you should check out. And um, he's covering um, he's covering all the World Cup qualifiers for the U.S. on site. So he's doing something with some real interesting magazine style reporting for. Uh, for his uh, football with Grant Wall newsletter, he is also at CBS Sports on the television side, and then hosts a podcast on Meadowlark Media. Uh, Landon Donovan, uh, Chris Whittingham are his two co-hosts on that podcast. So uh, three really interesting segments: Ken Belson to start, followed by Jamel Hill, followed by Grant Wall on the Sports Media Podcast. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly 
so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, as I said at the top, Ken Belson covers the NFL for the New York Times, and that job includes writing about NFL teams, uh, stadium issues, medical issues, lawsuits, and the reason he's here today. Uh, he's a longtime New York Times writer. Uh, he's worked for their Metro section, worked out of Japan previously before the Times wrote for Bloomberg, Reuters, and Business Week. We are also both graduates of the same journalism school, the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. And I am pleased to be joined by Ken Belson, who's had a busy month. Ken, thanks for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks, Rich. I would say busy nine years covering the NFL, but yeah. <laughs> well said. All right, I want to start something writ large, and then we'll we'll go into some more specifics. Um, very open-ended question here, Ken. How challenging is it to cover the NFL? Uh, it's a good place to start. Um, when the um, when my editor Jason Stallman gave me this assignment, uh, I dreaded it. I, I was a sports business writer um, on general assignment, so I used to flip from sport to sport, and and being a beat writer to me meant being in the press box. And to me, press boxes are stultifying. Um, you're all watching the same game. The sourcing is, is pretty obvious. It's uh, You can write very well, but it's not a great reporting challenge itself. And I didn't want to do that. And um, he actually reassured me, no, I actually don't care if you go to any games. I want you to cover the NFL on, based on issues. Uh, concussions was obviously a very big one. All sorts of legal challenges. Uh, issues that happen in the NFL are bigger than almost any other sport. Uh, Ray Rice with domestic violence, Jonathan Martin with bullying, Tom Brady with deflate gate, you name it. Every year there's some gigantic story that sort of captivates the national water cooler conversation. So, um, so that's challenging, right? Because I'm not just covering a single team. Um, I cover issues on 32 teams plus leagues. And I also write about um, youth football uh, and high school football at times. So it's a really, um, on the one hand, it's an absolutely wonderful opportunity to just explore the big story of the day uh, and keep things in reserve uh, for sometimes years. Uh, on the other hand, stuff breaks out all over the place and it's really competitive. I mean, the ESPN universe of reporters, um, the athletic, uh, of course, every single local NFL city has, you know, local media, um, and, and all the, uh, other people invested in it. And then there's the TMZs of the world, uh, which break news like the Ray Rice story. So it's really, um, it, you have to kind of keep an even keel and remember what you can do and what you can't do, uh, and zero in on the, the strengths you might have. Um, and the New York times obviously has a big brand. We're not a sports newspaper, but we're very influential with, um, the legal community with the medical community. And um, it's fair to say that it's one of the few publications that probably every owner pays attention to. So um, even within the NFL circles, uh, it's a influential publication. So we're not going to scoop um, a 
uh, get a scoop on, you know, where uh, Aaron Rodgers is going to end up next year. That's probably not our strong point, um, but we may get a scoop on, say, last year, uh, the issue that the NFL was using uh, race norms to judge black players um, in dementia claims, which was a, a big story that I was able to land. And, and that's a huge um, problem for the league, uh, that story particularly, but uh, issues like that. So it's, it's, it's a vast landscape and you just kind of feel your way through it from season to season. I, I will say in season nine, it's, I don't want to say it's getting easier. It's just, I've gotten used to the rhythms and, and getting those horrendous emails from your editor saying, what about this? Uh, hadn't you seen that? Um, so <laughs> that's, that's made, that's the bigger challenge really. I want to follow up on something because your job is particularly interesting. The, the, the NFL, when it comes to access to the NFL, is while they may not like a negative story about a team or a player, let, like something that happens on the field or the officials, as a general rule, like those who cover the league are going to still be part of the infrastructure. They're not going to get so much pushback. What you do, though, really can impact their bottom line. And in particular, as you mentioned, you work for the New York Times, which probably along with the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post are like really influential newspapers that those owners will read. So from your perspective, Ken, and you may be one of the few unique people who covers the NFL who have to deal with this, and I'm sure your predecessors at the Times dealt with it too. Um, how, how would you say the league's infrastructure is when you are trying to find out information? How... Um, I don't want to say how much access do they give you, but but what is that navigation like? Because my sense is hearing from you is very different than if they're going to, you know, hear from somebody about like, hey, maybe the Super Bowl should be on a Saturday. What do you think, League? Um, so I, I think it works both ways. Uh, I think when I'm working on a story um, that maybe they don't want see, to see printed, they generally come to the phone pretty quick. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, for me, just in terms of um, hearing them out and um, potentially steering me away from, you know, corrections or, or bigger disasters. Um, so, I mean, look, you know, the New York Times calls, um, it's, 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 sometimes it's not a call they want to take, but they do take it. And I think that's important. There probably are smaller publications um, uh, in local markets, perhaps, uh, where the NFL might wave it away a little bit and say, ah, we'll, we'll take the hit, just not bother. Um, and then there are stories that snowball, right? So uh, the Ray Rice story is a great example. The TMZ, uh, the publication of the, the video of Ray Rice uh, hitting his fiance was on TMZ, and, and the whole world was calling at that point. Um, and, you know, I, I, at that point... I'm just one of a million people calling for comment. So, um, you know, when it comes to stories that are a little closer to home, uh, I try and give them a chance to have their say. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. I mean, reporters are always on deadline and sometimes you intend to take an extra day and hear them out. And other times you just don't have that choice if you're in a competitive situation with another paper and, and kudos to, you know, the wall street journal, and the Washington Post and the LA Times also have done very good work, at least on the space where I am and the kind of national beat uh, USA Today. So it's, you know, sometimes you don't have that time and the luxury, but they, I, I would say generally they, they call and take, take my call and want to hear what I'm doing. It, it helps them, right? I mean, to know what I'm writing. And, um, you know, we do try and go the extra mile 
to spell out what we're writing. Not all newspapers and publications do, and that's frustrating. And uh, you know, in an ideal world, we'd have time to really sit down and hash it out. And and some and often that isn't or isn't possible. All right, let's get to um, let's get to the reason we're here, and that's the emails gathered in the league's investigation of workplace misconduct of the Washington football team. Uh, when and maybe it goes back a while, Ken, but when did you start working on stories about uh, the workplace misconduct at, at at WFT? We'll sort of make it large, and then obviously it narrows to this month when you started writing about some of the emails that you discovered. Sure. Um, the story uh, started last summer. Uh, initially, if you recall, there was a, you know, the team after George Floyd, there was pressure on the team to uh, change its name. Uh, that happened. Then it came out that there was a dispute between um, Dan Snyder, the owner, and uh, three of the limited partners, uh, which became kind of a um, its own story ecosystem. And then, and then the Washington Post really elevated the story by um, putting out two very big stories about workplace misconduct over a series of years against uh, former employees. I think they had up to 40 of them. And that's a good example where it's, it's just a hard story to match. I mean, it, it you know, they'd been working on it for a while. Uh, they, you know, it's their hometown team. That's a certain point. You, you just can't hope to match it. And so you don't, you have to look elsewhere for stories. And um, so over the course of what, from August through this past June, uh, well, June, July, uh, was the investigation. And obviously, there are many permutations to it. There were a bunch of legal findings, which, as you know, for a journalist or, or mana from heaven, you know, you can lean on uh, those filings for information. And there was discovery and there was accusations made. And, and in a sense, that makes your job a little easier because uh, once it's in the court documents, you know, it's a matter of getting there first or, or just knowing the background to it. And we were able to break um, two or three other stories in the interim. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the sources, um, you know, it's such a small universe. It's, it's a weird thing. You know, teams are private entities. The league is private. Uh, the investigation's going on. Uh, it's just a matter of like continuing to press and, and look for peeling the onion back one more layer. Um, and that's, that's hard to do. Uh, it takes a lot of time and often stories pop up when you least expect it and, uh, you don't have a chance to, prepare you just you know you thought you were working on something for a long time and then uh oh i guess today's the day so that's journalism um <laughs> there's nothing you can do to kind of undo that uh but it's 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 competitive for sure and uh, this last week was was one for the ages i think why um why should readers care about the story ken so the nfl uh as i've learned over the past past few years i used to just think it was it was the biggest league but i've come to believe that the the NFL is really one of the few sort of binding fibers in our country now. And I know there's still, of course, a lot of people who are not football fans, but it's hard to look away from the NFL. Um, sort of love it or hate it, everybody seems to have an opinion about the NFL. You don't really say that about the National Hockey League. No offense to Canadians um, or, or, <laughs> I'm or American, the NBA. Ken, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you're broadcasting in, the, in Canada. But, uh, you know, um, and so it's, it's, I didn't realize how, uh, and it's gotten bigger um, over the years, even in the years that I've covered the league, like how influential the league is on a good and a bad level. 
And the Ray Rice example, for instance, was just, uh, it was just went so far beyond anything I had uh, seen in sports. Uh, of course, there have been versions of it over the years, but it's really a window into American culture. And I've had, I remember during that Ray Rice period in 2014, and I've had this conversation in various, with various people over the years. I remember speaking to a, a woman who uh, has dedicated her life to helping victims of sexual abuse and domestic violence. And she said, you know, nobody would be talking about this if the, if Ray Rice hadn't happened. And, and she basically said, thank God, because I, we're finally having a national conversation about domestic violence. And, um, and I've said for years, we need to be having this conversation, but one NFL player gets caught on video and suddenly everybody wants to learn about it. And so I've heard that with doctors who analyze brain trauma, the bullying issue, uh, numerous other issues, uh, obviously with Colin Kaepernick and issues over patriotism and, and the right to protest and, and um, criminal justice system reform. The, the, the advocates in these areas all say that the NFL elevated their conversation, got them noticed in a way no other PSA or ad campaign or anything else has ever come close. And so that's why the NFL is a beat worth covering certainly for me and because it it's it is our national water cooler and uh things just sort of i mean and, and frankly the nfl doesn't necessarily deserve it in so far as it's not trying to do this it's just such a big league and such an influential sports platform that it ends up elevating practically every conversation it's part of all right ken now let's uh now let's get into it on october 8th you wrote a piece headlined Raiders coach made racist comment about NFL players, players union chief. Uh, those emails were first reported by the Wall Street Journal. If I'm incorrect on this, just correct me anytime. And then the New York Times uh, wrote about it. It obviously has since started a massive news cycle um, with um, with many things happening because of that, including obviously John Gruden resigning or forced resignation, however you want to sort of phrase it. Um, how did these emails first come to your intention not that they existed but the the ability to see some of them um well andrew's story andrew beaton of the journal published on friday um it was at the eighth yes. yes and yep. um most of the well a handful of beat writers who bother with these things were paying attention to the um results of a special kind of internal election at the players union um and so andrew's story dropped right in the middle of that uh, election, uh, I mean, literally hours before the election was supposed to happen, to see whether Demora Smith, the executive director, was going to get another term. And um, when that happened, obviously, we all had to pivot, or I certainly had to pivot, and put this news in there and kind of recast the whole story, because in the end, the election itself was, was just a footnote to uh, the comment uh, that was reported from um, John Gruden. So yeah, you know, Literally, you finish that story and your editor wants to know, what are you doing to get more of these? And uh, anybody worth their salt is out, you know, trying to call around and see what else is out there. Because if there's one, there's there's got to be more. Um, he he, meaning John Gruden, tried to explain it away as a as an incident 10 years ago. And he was upset and he, he didn't mean it. And his, he gave kind of a uh, convoluted response that ended up being a parody on Saturday Night Live <laughs> in the cold open the other day. Uh, but yeah, you just start calling everybody back, you know, and, and hope that you can, um, somebody can see what's happened, the impact it had and say, you know, 
and 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 agree with my logic, which is this this probably isn't a one time uh, incident. Uh, if if somebody says something this sort of awful, there may be there's a good chance this person's probably said many awful things over time, and that's what we were able to nail down uh, for the basis of Monday's story. And you know, it took took extra time. It was uh, another weekend um, not spent with my feet up uh, on the sofa. I didn't watch a single game, football game or anything. I was busy. So, um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the minute I saw some of these emails uh, and there were there were more than a dozen of them, it was very clear that his explanation meant w- was was really just not accurate, that there were emails from 2014 and 16 and 17 and so on. And, and they were insulting to a whole host of people and frankly, qu- quite gross. I mean, you know, I'm, not, I'm not squeamish, but some of it was juvenile. Some of it was just out and out bigoted. Um, but it was it was crystal clear. Right. So writing that story uh, Monday afternoon and evening was uh, not hard in that sense. We, th- th- there was a clear villain in this case, and it was John Groot. Can you say how many of these emails, these 650,000 emails you have personally seen? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I understand. I'm going to no. ask you a couple of things. I realize there's going to be some of these you can't. Um, sure. The emails that you've read, um, are the names redacted or is that something that the, the Times as a news organization made a choice to do? Well, as you saw in the um, the John Gruden story on Monday last week, uh, we, we actually named some of the people who yes, were CC'd on them and, and actually were part of the correspondence. Sometimes they were chiming in sometimes they started the email chains so yeah there were uh, i think we named at least three people who were part of that sort of circle which was bruce allen the then president of the washington team and john gruden and then the co-founder of uh, hooters uh jim mcveigh who runs the outback bowl uh, or did i'm not sure and uh and then another restaurateur uh from the tampa area so um so yeah, we you know we didn't hide that. Uh, we didn't quote them per se. I mean, they weren't the focus of it. They're not necessarily NFL figures. And frankly, there's only so much space in the story anyway. Um, and and most of the time, I mean, the stuff Gruden said was was sort of the exclamation point on a lot of these conversations, and it was sort of vile. Uh, I mean, we're a family newspaper, so I'd, I'd, I I assume most people got the hint of it, but it was just pretty disgusting language. So yeah, no, we we did include. Um, some of the other people on these email chains. Yeah, there's a good, I mean, won't have this now, but there, there's, a, I feel like there's actually a good debate to have that the organizations like the Times should actually not um, protect its audience from whatever the language is, because I think that sunlight's important. Regardless, anyway, that's a sort of a filibuster there. Is the um, is the New York Times actively trying to get more of these emails? I think uh, we and everybody else would love to see more of them. Um, you know, if there's, as you said, 600, you know, by the NFL's own admission, there are right. 650,000 emails, you know, at, let, let's assume 98% of them are boring. That's still a couple of thousand emails. Yeah. So sure. I think everybody wants to see if there's more the NFL, you know, or a source close to the NFL told the AP that there's nothing else to see here, move along. But um, I, I think most reporters would be negligent if they just said, you know, took them at their word and just said, ah, that's enough already. I know you don't, uh, as a reporter, as well as a member of the New York Times, sort of generally uh, traffic and speculation. That said, um, if I had, if you had to offer an informed analysis for people listening to this, how many more emails do you think will come out? We'll eventually see the light. To be honest, I, I really have no idea. I, I, I just don't know. 
Uh, there's there's a lot of reporters with a lot of contacts, and I, I, I can't even speculate. I, I don't know what other reporters are doing. Um, you know, I have my own leads that I follow, but uh, I, it's just a hard thing to answer. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know how the people who have these emails are going to react also. So uh, I, can't, I can't really answer the question. It's, I, I know people want to know. I just don't know how to answer. I mean, there's, it's impossible to know. I understand. Um, one of the really big reveals, I thought, over the last couple of uh, days was just Jeff Pash, uh, his name, um, in a, uh, you know, an email back and forth with Bruce Allen. Um, you know, that gets into, will the league do anything in terms of, I don't even know if discipline's the right word. I, I would imagine the league is not going to try to excise Jeff Pash, given his relationship. But when, when you discovered that, when you discovered Jeff Pash, given his role in litigation and his role with the union was sort of part of this, um, I don't know, I'd just be curious your sort of reaction to that revelation. Well, it was a, a very much a subtler story than uh, the John Gruden emails. Um, uh, Jeff is a longtime lawyer at the league, and he um, obviously has a lot of contact with officials across the league, including Bruce Allen. Uh, you know, it's worth emphasizing that the only reason we know any of this is because Bruce Allen used his email, his work email extensively and, and got swept up in the Dan Snyder Washington football team investigation. Um, had he been a little more discreet uh, with how he used his work email, um, then maybe we wouldn't be seeing any of this. But, you know, I can't answer for Bruce Allen. He, he did what he did. Um, and, and that's why this has all come out. Uh, I think to Jeff's point, I think the point, the, the, the issue we're trying to highlight is that Jeff wears many hats. And one of them, perhaps most prominently, is as the league's kind of disciplinarian. And, um, and here he was with a very kind of chummy, clubby relationship with an influential team president. And, you know, there are other teams that have been dinged over this period, uh, the Patriots for Deflategate, Jerry Jones uh, and Ezekiel Elliott and other teams. And here's this guy who seems to, um, I wouldn't say give Bruce Allen a pass, but he, he seems to be giving him the benefit of the doubt in many cases. And um, look, I, you know, I understand that Jeff Pash has to have relationships with 32 teams. He, in a sense, works for them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, a lot of private dining with his wives. He's very much a fan of the team, um, uh, you know, was asking for tickets for his nephews and his sons and kids and, you know, VIP seats and stuff like that. The league insists that he paid for all that, but it is it is a perk of sorts. Um, and it, it just seemed a little too close for comfort in light of the fact that he also, um, you know, was judging the Washington football team after Bruce Allen left. So, um, you know, we raised these points. Um, I, you know, I don't know if it's uh, as convincing as the Gruden story in terms of its impact, but it raises questions about the impartiality of a pretty powerful person at the league. Yeah, that's well said. All right, a couple more here. Um, one of the, one of the parts of the the sort of the story that I'm surprised hasn't gotten more attention certainly has in Washington, but maybe not elsewhere is the 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 passing around of pictures of the Washington cheerleaders. Um, unless I sort of have not seen the story it, it's uh you know it's 
it's hard to know how many people are on that chain and how deep sort of the passing along goes, but it's very clear that people were violated. And that's one I, I am sure the NFL does not want to ultimately get out because, um, you know, legally and financially, I think they'd be in big trouble. Do you, uh, do you expect sort of maybe more reporting on that? Because, you know, we've gotten a lot of reporting on Gruden, your reporting on Jeff Pash, uh, Bruce Allen. I imagine if more emails come out, they're sort of, they're going to be, figures in the NFL, but that's one, I don't know. It just, that hasn't gotten as much attention. And um, I'm wondering if maybe that's going to come or if that says something about something else. You have any thought on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the disturbing elements of the Bruce Allen portion of the emails is that he was sort of sharing uh, quite risque um, photos. Um, I say risque, so let me be more precise. Uh, Topless women, you know, covering their tops, with their arms, like folding their arms kind of thing. And basically just wearing bikini bottoms. So like that level of disclosure, if you want to call it that, uh, and, and not just once, but like numerous. And at least on one email, we saw the, there was a title that had the name of the cheer, not the name of the women, but you know, Washington cheerleaders or something on the top of it. So these were like calendar photos or something from the calendar shoot. And, you know, if I'm seeing, I don't know, give or take, I can't remember the number, but eight or 10 of those. Well, and he, and Bruce Allen is sharing them with four of his buddies, you know, who knows how many places in the internet this is gone. Um, and, and how many other photos there may be. Um, and that's, you know, that's something for maybe the lawyers for those women to investigate whether they've been, yeah. Um, uh, you know, their rights have been violated, uh, by Bruce Allen. Um, but I, I don't know enough about the law to, and the statute of limitations and how that works uh, on these things. But um, yeah, it's quite disturbing, particularly for somebody that powerful and who actually had oversight over the cheerleader sort of domain. Uh, It wasn't day to day that, but he seemed very interested in the cheerleader calendars, Uh, numerous references to it, uh, even in emails that had nothing to do with uh, the photos. Uh, He was even joking uh, to Jeff passion, one email about the cheerleader calendars. So it's a, it's a rather creepy part of the line of reporting here, and uh, we may not have heard the last of it. The um, I don't know if this was your piece or an earlier piece, but there was a sentence in there that I read that um, the league declined to say whether Gruden could face disciplinary action. This was before the second trove of emails came out, and then obviously that sealed his fate. Um, again, I'm asking you to speculate if you if you opt not to i can respect that but you know given that you're reporting this very few people in the in the country have a better feel for this do you think had more emails not come out and it was that singular uh email that was discovered for gruden i mean clearly a racist email um would he have survived because i have to be honest with you ken as a cynic i think he would have i think he would have apologized i think the Raiders and others would have tried to move on really, really fast, and that would have been that. It was that second trove where obviously it made his initial apology just, you know, basically blow up and and rendered absurd that it was over. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's my read on it. But again, that's that's a little bit of a cynical read. Um, I don't think you're far off. I remember the first that that first story that came out. The Raiders put out a statement, Mark Davis, the owner, where he said, "Well, this was an email that." was written before he was reemployed by the team. And, and, and he was, it was 10 years ago. In other words, he was making excuses for why he's not going to penalize him. And the body language of Mark Davis's email and frankly, the leagues was we could survive this. 
um, it's a single email. And, and in fact, that kind of, I don't want to say, I don't make it a personal thing, but it, it, it kind of irked me that they were sort of just waving this away. And so when I found the additional emails, um, I realized, yeah, this is more than just John Gruden waving it away. This is the team wishing it went away. And, and frankly, at some level, the league. And that made the impact of the additional emails that much stronger. Uh, it didn't hurt that we, and not, it wasn't by design initially, but, but that the story dropped during Monday Night Football um, just made everybody in the football universe pay attention to it in a way that, you know, if it put up at 11 p.m. or something, it, it would have been different. So, um, yeah, it, I, I, my, I think you're on to something there. I, I, my sense or my hunch was that they maybe they would have disciplined him or fined him or make him take an anger management class or something like that. Um, but it didn't seem like they were their initial reaction was a horror or 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 um, repulsion, you know, being revolt, uh, being repulsed by it. So, um, yeah, he, he might have survived it. Um, but, you know, within an hour of our story coming out, uh, you know, he uh, he resigned. So he he probably knew he knew there were other emails out there and it probably was just a matter of time before they came out. Okay, final two. You may not be able to answer this one. Are there emails that you've seen that you've yet yet to write about? There are many things I've seen that I haven't written about. Um, you know, you try and in any story, you try and call through and find like the best examples of things. So, um, you know, including even in the John Gruden email, some of them were just there. There were emails that were hard to explain, or were references that would have taken a paragraph to set up, um, or were repetitive. Um, and so, yeah, there's emails that we didn't publish um, because they, you know, they didn't help forward the story at all. So, yeah. And then the last one, this is very tangential, but but it, it is part of the story. Um, what did you make of the revelations about um, Adam Schefter and his email to uh, to, to Bruce Allen, which uh, Schefter has since come out and, uh, you know, apologized and and. and and said he shouldn't have done it. And, you know, it's sort of, again, it's not going to be, it's not going to be a big part of this story because ultimately the, the, the forces in the NFL are the issue, but obviously within our circles, uh, Ken, um, this, this got a lot of attention and, you know, really kind of spoke to the, uh, um, maybe the worst of the, uh, the, the access relationship kind of thing. Um, I shouldn't, what are the, what's the line about throwing stones in a glass house? I, I should be careful about, yeah, yeah. Criticizing right. another journalist. On the other hand, um, speaking generally, you know, there's there are tiers of journalists covering the NFL, and those include um, journalists who work for rights holders, uh, ESPN, CBSSports.com, NBCSports.com. Uh, you know, they all, at some level, even if um, they are, you know, scrupulous, they do work for a company that ha- pays the NFL. You know millions hundreds of millions and even billions of dollars and um and so you know and then even within the universe of reporters there's tv reporters are very different than print reporters in terms of what they need and how they have to get along with people and there's there's very good reporters believe me and by the way adam Schefter for for what he does is very good at it i mean he's um i I, you know he is tireless he um look it's not the reporting i do I, i i don't talk about trades and blah, 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 but he's broken numerous stories and, um, uh, you know, he's, he has been a very influential reporter. This example with Bruce Allen, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, um, 
I, you know, I, I can't say I'm surprised at some level. I'm, I'm a bit appalled, but um, maybe not surprised. The one last thing is that he, um, uh, this was during the 2011 lockout, right? So this was during the uh, CBA and Bruce Allen was uh, working on the management committee at that point. So uh, there, there was reason to just, he wasn't just randomly chosen as a source um, in that sense. But yeah, it's a road that I don't go down. Ken Belson covers the NFL for the New York Times. Um, you've certainly seen his work on the uh, on the workplace misconduct of the Washington football team and the 650,000 emails that have been gathered in the league's investigation of that misconduct. He covers medical issues and uh, stadium issues, lawsuit issues, domestic violence issues, and those um, kind of stories for the Times does it pretty much about as well as anybody in the world. So, um, you know, check his uh his reporting out um it seems very clear that there's gonna be more on this particular topic and um it's an absolute story i think that uh it's probably the biggest story right now in the league because it because it really has significant impact um on the on that league's power brokers ken listen man i appreciate you coming on today um you know i know usually this would be reserved for uh the New York Times and your fancy daily show, but but you're <laughs> nice to slum on this uh, smaller podcast. Uh, and I have great know. respect for your work, and I appreciate Likewise. your time. Thanks, yeah, thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Good stuff. Thanks, Rich. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right. As I said at the top, uh, Jamel Hill is back on this podcast. She's been a guest uh, many times between this one and the Sports Illustrated one. She's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, the host of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the, a podcast for Spotify, as well as a creative advisor for Meadowlark Media. There's probably some other gigs in there that I haven't mentioned. Jamel's always busy. And Jamel joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Jamel, thanks for popping on today. I appreciate you having me. All right, so here's where I want to start with you. Um, I want to know, this is a very sort of open-ended question. How did you view, or how have you viewed the um, the story of the uh, NFL investigating the workplace conduct with the Washington football team, which has obviously led to these, at least based on the NFL, 650,000 emails, and then, of course, what we have learned from uh, John Gruden and Jeff Pash and Adam Schefter and all these other tentacles with it. Just as a very broad view, how how do you see this story sort of just from an observer perspective? Uh, well, it, it's it's so much to unpack. Um, there's the league level uh, of this um, equation in the sense that people are now seeing how the sausage is made and what they're finding out is the sausage, you know, it, it, it kind of stinks, <laughs> right? <laughs> in right. terms of how it's made. And so... Um, there's this, you know, the behind the scenes wrangling. There's a lot of things that I think most of us um, with any sort of common sense sort of knew that went on, but to kind of see it uh, starkly in print, 
to confirm things you felt about the league for years and certainly by their actions and their behavior and just the makeup of the league. You know, it, I think it is still probably pretty startling to a lot of people. Um, you know, we do have to keep in mind that this all started and I'm glad you said this with an investigation into the Washington football team. And to me, this unearths even more questions about this supposed investigation, because if this is all the things that you're that are coming out of these emails, how is it that Daniel Snyder still owns this team and that they it quietly was able to go away for just ten million dollars? I mean, we have fake injury reports um, that were kind of. Uh, you know, pushed to the side, you know, which came out in the revelations about Jeff Pat, Jeff Pash and his cozy relationship with Bruce Allen, who, by the way, seems like the worst person ever, because I'm just like, how is this guy? How did he become a, you know, a general manager and rise to the level that he did? Because um, and I saw Amy Trask did an interview about this. Uh, she complained about the way his behavior, you know, when she was with the Raiders and it just it, um, it amazes me that somebody like this was ex was able to not just exist inside of the NFL system, but attain quite a bit of power within that. So, you know, you have how the league looks, which I think is pretty bad and pretty shameful. And then, you know, of course, John Gruden pretty much just caught astray. I mean, he, he was, that's not to absolve or minimize uh, many of the awful things that he said, but um you know, it, of course, it went through everybody's mind, particularly, you know, if you're black or um, in one of the, um, you know, communities he attacked throughout these emails, you're thinking, um, so if he felt this comfortable saying this over email, wh what was he saying to people in person? So there's, there's, uh, you know, then there's the Af Adam Schefter part of this, like, it, this is just a full display. Um, I wouldn't even call it um, incompetence, but but just, um, you know, a league that becomes as powerful as the NFL uh, and, and one that has its tentacles and virtually everything and permeates sports and sports media and just the whole colossal, you know, empire of what we know as the sports machine. This is just just quite a breakdown of, of how we're able to see as fans, as reporters, as, you know, onlookers, um, just what goes into this massive empire. And a lot of it isn't pretty. Yeah, we're gonna get get to some of this in a second. Um, you know, the, the expression "old boys network" has become cliche, but like with Bruce Allen, it's actually not cliche. It like literally is the epitome of uh, of that. You uh, you wrote in the Atlantic, John Gruden just put it in writing, and sort of your sort of the 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 thesis of your piece is that the the league basically sort of this all underscores the basic problem is that the NFL is full of John Gruden's. Like, he's not an outlier. He's not an anomaly. Like you said, he just took a stray. He just got caught. Um, there were just emails on this. You know, the, I want to believe a lot of times that the NFL is trying to diversify its ranks, is trying to get more women um, in the sport, is trying to um, have more people of color in the sport. But then these emails come out, and I'm like, it's it's always the same bullshit, and it's always been that. Um, I don't know. Do, do, have, has all of this... Um, made you more cynical about the NFL's sort of public relations campaign to to try to diversify its ranks, or is this is Gruden sort of part of a you know I don't know a previous era and and we are heading in the right direction? How do you uh, how do you read that? Well, it's pretty hard for me to get more cynical about the NFL because I <laughs> remain very cynical right. about the NFL. Uh, usually, corrupt, corrosive systems can't fix themselves. Um, 
And, you know, I don't mean to sound like an ultimate pessimist. I mean, I think much like a lot of systems that operate in, in America that have roots that are pretty baked in institutional racism, they're going to have blips of progress. They're going to have times of progress. But overall, the system is going to continue to operate the way that it was designed. And um, the people, you know, becoming a more diverse and inclusive organization is just one part of it because there's the sort of aesthetic part where you add um you know more women more black folks more brown folks um you know people from different socioeconomic backgrounds um different sexual orientations there's that part of it but then you wonder within these systems that have operated in a particular fashion for a long time are those people that they are including more do they actually have any power and my guess is no because they can't possibly have any power um, or the type of power that it would take to change and reverse course on a league that continues to behave this way uh, because it would be pretty hard to do that. I mean, you know, we were talking about uh, the NFL has been in existence for 101 seasons. They just got the first black team president last year, who ironically is with the Washington football team. Considering you know, and they bring him in at a time where this this um, football team is, is at a is at a low point in terms of culture, in terms of morale, and he that one person is supposed to fix all this. Like, no, <laughs> they, 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 that's not that's not possible. So it's it's beyond just including new faces, new voices. Um, it's do they have the support and the empowerment to actually try to change this. And oh, by the way, it shouldn't just be up to the black people and the brown people and the women to do this. It shouldn't just be up to them. This system has got to crumble because everybody feels like there's something that needs to be changed. And I don't think everybody feels that way. The NFL has been able to exist and operate this way and make billions of dollars. I don't know what is their motivation to change how it's been operating. What is it? There's not one. So that's why I remain very skeptical that the NFL will reach a point where people like John Gruden won't feel as comfortable existing in this league as they do. They may stop emailing, they may stop texting things to each other, but the mentality of that John Gruden had is to me very prevalent in the NFL. Let me, um, you know, let's put my cynicism hat on here and my skepticism hat on, like you. I watched, uh, I watched a lot of the pregames this uh, this week, and it's not that it's not that I expect uh, NFL pregame shows to be frontline, but I, I guess I remain a romantic that you know maybe like they'll occasionally surprise me and like you know like the name Daniel Snyder will actually be name checked, you know what I mean, or Jeff Pash will be name checked, and generally never the case. So I watched this stuff, and again. No, nobody pretty much put it in the first block, the, the, you know, the emails and some places did better than others in terms of trying to have a discussion, but nobody ever went to Snyder and questioned his ownership. Nobody, nobody talked about Jeff Bash. It was very much like a third rail thing. So it made me think, Jamal, um, you know, there was a time, particularly also when you worked at ESPN, that outside the lines had a ton of money. It was a daily show. ESPN was doing a lot of investigations on concussions. And I wonder um, today, and again, this is no disrespect to the great journalists at ESPN and elsewhere, but how aggressive do you think the ESPNs and or any other rights partners will be on this story? Because, you know, the, the reality is, you know, they're all making money together and they just all paid a ton of money for this league for the next 10 years. And, 
you know, everybody can make money if everybody sort of just goes along swimmingly and, you know, you're focused on the awesome Cowboys-Patriots game as opposed to something else. Well, I mean, I, I think ESPN, um, you know, still has a lot of dedicated journalists, but it's it's kind of like what I was talking about in terms of the NFL fixing some of its institutional issues is what's their motivation to do it. And I would look at ESPN in the same uh, you know, in the, in the same vein. It's like, what is their motivation to go after a league that they're in business with? And, you know, up until recently, or, you know, they went through a few years, as you've reported on, um, you know, many times where them in the NFL, you know, it was a bit of a strained relationship. Now things are good. Now ESPN has a playoff game. So what's the motivation, you know? <laughs> and a great Monday night and football, a great schedule, Monday night football exactly. schedule. What's the motivation to start digging into things that will only expose um, you know, what this league really is. And I don't think there's much motivation to do it. And that doesn't come down to the single-handed commitment of many of the great journalists at ESPN. That's an institutional thing. And I, I just can really see a scenario where there's not a lot of support to do that. Uh, so that in itself becomes um, a, an obstacle for those who do want to look into it. And that's not to say that they they will just leave the story alone. There may be pockets of this, but I think ESPN is probably content to be an observer and to have occasional conversations about it on, uh, you know, on the pregame shows and, and other or opinion, opinion shows. shows. Yeah. Like, I think they're probably pretty happy with that to show that like, oh yeah, we recognize there's a problem. We'll say our five minutes on it and then we're going to kind of move on. And I think that's another part of this that, certainly came out of it is that you not only got a sense of a real sense of how the NFL works, you also got a real sense of how the media works. And, um, you know, it, it, it reminds me of when I first got into this business now 20 plus years ago. And it, it was with the idea that journalists, we are supposed to hold institutions like the NFL accountable. And you see at a, at the highest level where that could be done, that's not happening, and there's no motivation for that to actually happen. You know, one of the things that um, I want to be sort of clear on is that, you know, you can't make any presumptions as to, like, how much ESPN knew about John Gruden and who he was emailing with and who he's buddies with and what he says. I mean, you know, you can make the—I guess you can make the jump that, like, if John Gruden's saying something on emails, you know— when he's with ESPN people uh, behind the scenes at a dinner and maybe the wine's flowing, he might say something. But I don't even want to make that presumption because I think people can compartmentalize stuff. But one thing I was thinking, Jamal, is like John Gruden was the face of ESPN's game broadcast coverage for a long time. And that's the cat who we sort of discovered in emails. You know what I mean? Like he, he had a massive forum multiple millions of people every week where he sort of gave his viewpoint on football. He gave his viewpoint on players. And we learned a lot about who this guy was behind the scenes. I don't know. I, I'm, that's not really a question for you. You're welcome to sort of follow on that. But that was one of the things I thought about. I was like, man, like this was the face of the place. And this is who this guy was. And this is who this guy, and this is the guy who we were getting Monday Night Football from for nearly a decade. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, um, and, and I know that people see those emails and just how plain spoken that he was. And they think that, oh, well, surely John Gruden was walking around ESPN saying these things and people just kind of looked the other way. Did I believe, do I believe that, um, you know, that, ES, that at ESPN he was speaking in a similar level of comfort that he did with Bruce Allen? I don't think so. But I think that the, a lot of people who really feel that way um, and let their feelings be known 
um, they know who to have that conversation with. They know their audience. Now, were there probably people at ESPN where he felt like he had that kind of audience? Probably so. I'm sure I'm sure there were a few people at ESPN where he felt like were receptive to those kind of viewpoints or at least there was an audience there and that's who he spoke to. You know, it's funny, um, you know, not to drag her into this, but I guess sort of this is the only example I can think of that is recent. Sage Steele, for example, people have asked me, obviously, after all the stuff that come out, did you know Sage Steele was like this? Sage Steele and I have never had one political conversation, not one. Why would we? Okay, I think I'm pretty open about how I feel about certain things. Do you think Sage, right, Sage right. Steele is not going to have that conversation with me? But are there other people at ESPN that I know she's had those kind of conversations with where she's, you know, espoused her conservative values? Yes. But that was her audience to do that. So I think it was very similar, probably with John Gruden. I don't think that this is, I don't think he's having that conversation with John Skipper. Probably not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No. Like, that would be my yeah. guess. But are there <laughs> producers and other people? Yeah, he probably did. Okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> so I'm sorry for laughing, but just the idea of John Gruden having that conversation with John Skipper is very. Yeah, that's. To me. So yeah, it's that's like, you know, the, right. the sort of who, who knew and when thing. Like, I don't know. You know, like, I'm sure, as you saw, Mike Tarico and Tony Dungy. They had yeah. So never, never take L, never take L's on behalf no, of uh, no, others. You, you right? do not, yeah. especially right. when this is the subject matter. <laughs> uh, of course, he's not gonna say the things that he said about you know probably black people and other minorities to them. Of course not. Like, so, which is why you don't say you do, you don't willingly provide a cake for him because you don't know what kind of conversations he's having with people who don't look like you. So, um, so yeah. So I, I, I think you know ESPN's role in this. I know sometimes it's it's very easy to paint them in the as the villain of all of all things, but I, I definitely easily see a scenario where they, the people that mattered, I should say, the people that signed the checks, the people that, you know, certainly put Gruden in a booth and, um, you know, were champions. And I, I can very easily see them them not knowing any of this. Yeah, I think that's a good take. I actually think that's I think that's correct. But I mean, obviously, only the only people who knew were John Gruden. And and others. Um, all right, a couple more things here before I before I let you go. Um, there's been a lot, obviously, made about Adam Schefter's um, email exchange with Bruce Allen. Um, you know, regarding uh, when Schefter was writing about labor issues and uh, forwarding a story to Bruce Allen, and you know, I think probably which obviously left a lot of journalists sort of uh, uh, rightfully like just like shaking their head. You know, his very chummy chumminess with Bruce Allen, who's a source. And, you know, what do you think, Mr. Editor? One thing Jamal is sort of very clear is that like, um, you know, ESPN, I think, looks at its insiders differently. Nothing was going to happen to Schefter from from for that. Um, He probably takes a big hit, obviously, among, you know, quote unquote, traditional journalists, but nothing's going to change. And I think shortly thereafter, people are going to move on. And at the end of the day, like, I think if you're just going to be honest, like you already know there's Schefter has given up something to be an access journalist. There, There is generally speaking, usually a price to pay when you are that close within sort of the league's infrastructure. And, you know, for Adam, it's proven incredibly successful because he's able to get stories and transactional stuff that nobody else gets. Um, what did you, uh, What'd you make of that when you saw that Adam Schefter was uh, was sort of part of this story in addition to Gruden and Jeff Pash and John and uh, Bruce Allen, et cetera? Um, the thing that surprised me was that a lot of people, as in the general public, 
the way many of them responded, they assumed that was the case. Like they assumed yeah, that was really fascinating to me is that they have, they saw somebody who's an insider in the, in the NFL. And I assume maybe they look this, this way at all insiders that they're not, is just a cozy relationship, but a, like a working relationship, like to the point where it's just like, Oh, so the, the this is the public's perception of how this is supposed to go. Them not really seeing them as, journalists, which was very shocking to me. Um, so, I, I mean, listen, I, I saw Adam's, uh, you know, uh, apology um, and, you know, him had sort of admitting that this was not a good look journalistically, which I'm glad that he was able to take ownership of the situation. But, you know, there, there, we all horse trade in this business, right? So, I, you know, there's a bit of, you know, you're going to have chummy relationships and, 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 and things uh, that you may, um, you know nothing unethical but but there's but there's certainly um if you are in that position where you're breaking news or whatever like you know you're gonna have a, a cool relationship a a good rapport with your sources to get access to these kind of of tidbits and news that you know obviously speak to how connected that you are as a reporter but to show a source your story i, I don't think people understand that that is a line that you never cross in this business you don't do that like in um I think the the question for people, you have to look at how stories are framed. You know, you're talking about labor negotiations where we see how the general public usually reacts to that. They are usually anti-player, okay, for the most part. And so if your job as a journalist is to explain, you know, why there's contention, contentiousness or give it context, if the context is only being provided, uh, you know, provided by one side that you're allowing to see your story, then you're framing this in a dishonest way. That that's it's hard to get past that. To to you know, um, just as a, not just a journalist, but just as a a person in the public, it's hard to get past that part of it. So I think you know, like you, I didn't expect anything to have happen to to Adam Schefter. I think ESPN is completely comfortable with this being the the relationship that he has with the league because you know you know because Adam Schefter is you know and this can be the tricky part of just working at uh, ESPN overall. It's like when you're in his position and Woj's position, like you and I know how committed and dedicated Woj is to journalism, and but the thing is the machine itself you're going to become a celebrity within that. You know we have you're becoming a brand unto yourself. You know Schefter is a brand. You know, he's not your traditional journalist. I mean, I think um, it, it would be in many respects hard to call him a journalist. And it, it, it is something that I struggled with as well. You know, when I was on TV every day and you're com commentating on the news and you're giving your opinion, Mike and I used to joke all the time that we were retired journalists because we didn't see the same, our function as hosts was not the same as the people that are out there gathering sources, talking to people, and for that matter, um, having to be held accountable for what they write and say. It's like, we weren't in that vein. So at that point, when I'm on His and Hers on SportsCenter, I am just your entertainment. I'm not a journalist, okay? And so, um, and even now in, in my variety of roles, I would not say I'm strictly performing a function as a journalist. So at any rate, I think, um, you know, for the fan, the sports fans who trust Adam Schefter's information, it should be a little startling because that means that the way things are framed and the context um, and even, uh, you know, the horse trading that goes that goes on. It's a little hard not to look at that and say, yeah, that that really costs Adam Schefter some credibility. But I, I think the people that probably cost him his credibility to are not the people that actually matter. So. 
I was gonna say I I I appreciate your take on this because like I I while I'm not on TV, I I'm very self-aware that sort of what I'm covering is kind of absurd compared to like a reporter who's in Haiti covering poverty or people who are covering crime every day in this country or people who are uh I used to say, Jamel, like writing about <laughs> politics or Washington, D.C., but they're almost celebrities. Right. In their own. And then they get back to Schefter. Woj is a little different. I agree with you. I sort of look at him differently. But like, yeah, I mean, maybe the word insider is a better word because that's kind of what you are in a way. You really are trading information at the end of the day or you're a broker of information is better. Maybe a better way to. Yeah, I mean, it. but is is when you hear the word insider. I guess I assume that is a journalist, but as I said, uh, the fascinating thing about this story was it should I I say it should be whether it always is I don't know. Yeah, you know? I mean the fascinating part about it is that the the general public didn't actually look at it that way. That they just they made right. they made more assumptions um, about what that relationship looked like than than frankly I did because I, I I am looking at an insider as a purely journalistic you know, function because you're reporting on contracts, transactions, yeah. you know, all this, it, right. like thing. And they, and they, and they, the audience saw Schefter as just a part of the league, yeah. right? An apparatus of the league, which was interesting yeah. or the majority of them, which maybe makes us, I don't know if it makes us more naive, but they're at least, I don't know. It, it like in a way they sort of are looking under the curtain and they kind of realize that, you know, there's not real Schefter is an extension of the league in many ways <laughs> compared to, let's say like my early guest here, Ken Belson, Clearly, as a journalist covering the NFL, there is yeah, a no, there, there's definitely you know a difference, and I'm certainly not saying that people shouldn't trust Adam Schefter's uh, information, but I think they should keep in the back of their mind that there is a yeah. much cozier relationship there than maybe um, people assume you know would be there. I mean, I, I don't want to go as far as to say like he's carrying water for the NFL, but you know he's carrying a couple scoops <laughs> at the very at yeah. the very. No, least. I think that's yeah. fair, and I, I think that's a great way to look at. It. I think like. Um, I think there's a you can be a little skeptical at the same time I think he's also developed a reputation of being a very very good reporter in many ways at what he does so it's you know if you're in the audience it's it's nothing is absolute on this um who do you have coming up Jamel you're some of your uh your podcast guests have been like, I mean, A plus. Who I don't know who the hell your booker is, but maybe it's you. Maybe it's you. But tip, tip it is not hat. me. I do. I do have a very talented right. booker that I work with. Uh, this week, uh, Tiffany Haddish is on the podcast. Next week, we have Lisa Ling, um, and yeah, there's some other people uh, that we're really are crossing our fingers on and have a very good chance um, of getting before years end that are super huge. So the podcast oh, is, well, those are, two, those are, yeah, those are two A plus. Those are, that's, those are two A plus. Yeah. Guys. When you talk about journalists, you know, journalists, jur nice. journalists, journalists is definitely Lisa Ling for sure. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Well, Tiffany Haddish is, I mean, uh, you know, your deal. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. You're, you're, I don't know what the expression, you're playing, you're playing a different game <laughs> than I am. And I, I certainly, res I respect that very much. All right. Jamel Hill, um, Follow her work at like her many different uh, places. She's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, host of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast for Spotify. She's a creative advisor for Meadowlark Media, which really sort of in a way I just feel like means that like they can use her on any show they want because she's all over the Lebertard uh, network when um, there's issues of interest, which is very smart for them, I think, uh, to use her that way. Uh, Jamel, you're always great to come on at short notice. I appreciate it very much and uh, wish you nothing but the uh, continued success. Thanks so much for coming on the Sports Media Podcast today. Appreciate you having me. Thanks, Rich.
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Final guest of this uh, podcast extravaganza. It is my old Sports Illustrated colleague, Grant Wall, who writes the Football with Grant Wall newsletter on Substack. He works uh, with CBS Sports on television and also is part of Meadowlark Media. Uh, you know, Grant, do you have a fancy title with Meadowlark Media, like advisor, or is your podcast host? Like, what? I don't know. I should have done better research on this. What's the official title with them? That's a great question. I don't know if I have one. We have a partnership uh, with Meadowlark. So uh, my podcast comes out twice a week, uh, Mondays and Thursdays, talking soccer, doing interviews. And then after every U.S. World Cup qualifier, Landon Donovan joins Chris Whittingham and me uh, to break it down. It's been a lot of fun, a lot of qualifiers lately. And, um, you know, hoping to do and planning to do even more with Meadowlark, which, as you know, is run by John Skipper and Dan Lebetard, and they're off to a good start. Will you, uh, will that podcast exist as far as you know during the World Cup? Because that could actually, if you're going uh, multiple times a week, uh, that that would seemingly be uh, of great interest to people. That's the plan. I mean, I did a daily podcast during World Cup 2018. Uh, with Brian Strauss at Sports Illustrated, really enjoyed it and got a good response is a tournament like that, the storylines build and build. And and, uh, we did um, with the Women's World Cup in 2019. It wasn't a daily pod, but it was after every U.S. game uh, with Lake and Littman at SI. So I really, yeah, I enjoyed doing that as well and plan on doing that next year. All right, so here's where I wanted to have you on because I want to try to talk to you about some of the things you're doing. because I think uh, listeners will find this interesting, particularly maybe younger people who are sort of thinking about the notion of, okay, how can I like uh, have a multi-platform, you know, how can I have multiple platforms in my uh, career, which may just be the case as, um, you know, as media jobs uh, continue to be lost and you can't go in the traditional route. So you, your, your writing work now is on Substack, uh, correct? Correct. Okay. So, um, and I'm assuming you're not writing culture war pieces, Grant. I'm very disappointed in you. Can you at least, as a substacker, <laughs> yell at me for something, like call me a coastal elite or something, even though I live in Toronto, Ontario? <laughs> Just do something that will anger me. Um, so you're on, you're, so you're doing substack, and if I'm correct about this, you, people can pay you a certain amount of money to read your work, um, whatever weekly daily yearly whatever so give us so here's a twofold question here one why was this the right option or decision for you and two if i'm just a soccer fan like what 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 are you offering me and what would i have to do to get your work yeah so my site has all of my writing exclusively it's at grantwall.com and you can sign up for free actually or paid and there will always be posts that are free, but there will also be posts that are paid and go only to paid subscribers. So um, I just wanted to be all about quality, which is what I was able to do for basically 25 years at Sports Illustrated. Media landscape, as you know, has changed quite a bit. And if you wanna be a pay subscriber, 
to my site, it's $6 a month or $50 a year. And I'm trying to do the highest quality stuff possible. So uh, in my dealings with Substack, they made a really nice offer. They include a travel budget that allows me to cover every US World Cup qualifier on site. And then uh, I'm doing magazine style stories uh, where I'm able to travel to Europe uh, and all over to do those types of stories. So I just wanna be doing that type of really quality stuff that hopefully people are gonna be willing to pay for. But if you wanna give it a shot with the free sign up, you can do that and get all you know those posts in your inbox. Uh, or if you wanna pay, you get all my posts in your inbox. And uh, in Substack, I think what they've been doing with prominent writers in different genres over the last year or so is, uh, with some of us, they're offering guaranteed income for a year as we build a subscriber base. And then they're also offering a travel budget. They're also uh, covering the services of an editor. My old Sports Illustrated editor, Mark Moravik, is editing my stuff. And so in, in many ways, this is sort of old school Sports Illustrated print magazine uh, approach, including to covering big games like these US World Cup qualifiers. So I promise that by 9 a.m. Eastern, the morning after every US World Cup qualifier, you're gonna get a 2,000, 2,500 word magazine quality story on the game that has content you won't see in any other outlet. And I approach it the same way I used to cover big games in the late 90s and early 2000s for Sports Illustrated Magazine, but you always had to wait four days to get that print story in your mailbox and i'm saying you're going to get it the next morning in your inbox all right so there's a couple things here that i want to sort of dial down on do you have to negotiate the travel budget with management and substack so do you say my intention in 2021 or 2022 is to go to these you know whatever 15 sites here is what i estimate the plane and hotel costs would be and here's the lump sum. That's kind of fascinating to me because that's, you're right, in a way that's very old school in terms of how you would do it um, when working for like one of these old school magazines we used to work for. But yet you, you're you're obviously now booking the flight on your own, you're booking the hotel on your own, but if someone's funding it, that's really fascinating. So Substack, how does that work then? Like how does it work in terms of the, forget about what they might pay for the content, how does it work with the travel part? That's really interesting to me. Well, I put together a budget basically. And I said, there's gonna be 14 US World Cup qualifiers between September and March. These are huge games for the American soccer community and I wanna cover all of these on site. So that was a big part of it. I also was like, I wanna do a certain number of really ambitious magazine style stories. So I went to Leipzig, Germany in mid August for a, a story on Jesse Marsh, who's the coach at Leipzig, American, He's risen higher than any American soccer coach in Europe. So that's the type of, of stories that I want to be working on. And I've got another European trip coming in a, in a week where I'm going to actually report two or three stories on the same trip and then write those for my Substack site. So it's a combination of independence. I'm my own boss, but also having the travel budget to, to do this stuff the right way. And unlike a lot of other Substack sites, I'm not just sort of sitting 
at my apartment here in New York City and pontificating or writing analysis type stuff. I'm doing ambitious reporting and getting out there in the world. And that's what I do best. And sub, so Grant, if I understand this correctly, like you, you and Substack, you negotiate with Substack sort of like a, um, a fee for the year. Basically they're paying you a fee for the year, including the travel budget and including the, uh, money for our old colleague, who's a great editor, by the way, Mark Moravik. Is that basically how it works? Yeah. There's, you know, they're supporting me for a year. It's a little bit like a book, a book advance. Um, and and so after one year, the hope obviously is that I have enough paid subscribers to make it sustainable. But you know, it's it's a really good opportunity and something I couldn't pass up. You know, given that next year's a World Cup year as well, um, you know, uh, I, I'm really excited and it's gone really well so far in the two months that I've been doing it. All right, so you know, obviously there's some other people, high profile people like in sports who who are sort of doing this. Uh something similar in sports. Mark Stein is probably a good example who left the New York Times to form his own Substack. One of the things that, um, th this is a bit of a media, a sports media nerd question, but I think some people will find it interesting too. You know, Grant, when you are at a, um, Sports Illustrated or Fox or a, uh, New York Times or, you know, Mark Stein's case, credentialing is no issue. You're going to be able to get credentialed for, um, you know, in your case, uh, 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 a national team qualifier in Mark Stein's case, he can get a credential to cover the Pacers and Raptors on a Tuesday night. Um, is that still the case? And maybe it's still the case because the, the, the public relations or the organization knows you grant while you've been covering the sport for a long time, or did you have to make any kind of sell to these places that would provide you access that, Hey, all right, here's what this is. And, and here's what I'm doing, and I need a credential, even though it's like you're just credentialing Grant Wall as opposed to credentialing, you know, Grant Wall of Sports Illustrated. I haven't had any issues with credentialing so far. Now, obviously, the games I'm going to are run by the U.S. Soccer Federation. They know me. They've credentialed me, um, as have all of the, the federations in Central America where I've gone recently for U.S. World Cup qualifiers. Um I'm not too concerned about FIFA credentialing me for the World Cup next year just because I've I've been credentialed by FIFA for, for so many things over time. And they've often credentialed freelance writers from different countries over the years. So that type of thing I'm not concerned about. Um, I got credentialed for, uh, by Leipzig for the game that uh, I covered there in August. Um, I'm hoping to go to a UEFA Champions League game in a week or two, so I'll let you know if uh, I get credential for that. But I, I, I'm really not concerned, you know. Like I've been doing this for a long time, and and uh, and have a big Twitter following, so it does help when you have like 800 thousand some followers on Twitter, both with credentialing, but also with setting up interviews for stories because people know that I'll have a place where I can promote that and get that out to a big audience. So here's the ball game, Grant. How, what, how challenging is it to get people who are interested in what you've written over the years and are certainly interested in soccer to take that interest and to pay for that interest? Because that's really where the rubber meets the road on all the stuff. You never know. I mean, that's the thing. Um, you know, Substack's been around long enough that there are certainly examples of writers who've, 
not only been successful and sustainable, but wildly successful and sustainable uh, in terms of subscriptions and, and had a much bigger income than they would have at a more traditional outlet. Um, you know, I have a goal, you know, I'd like to have three to 5,000 paid subscribers after this one year. Um, and I'll, I'll be transparent. I'm, I'm currently after two months at about 700 paid and I've had about 5,000 uh, free signups. So these are folks who sign, you know, uh, put in their email so they get the free posts. And the, the whole pr process is that you hope to convert a portion of those free signups into paid subscribers. So, you know, so far so good. I really appreciate the support that everyone's been given uh, to me, you know, over the last two months, and I'm just doing everything I can to to give them good stuff. Yeah, it's like the old Glengarry Glen Ross line from Alec Baldwin at the beginning of that movie: "Man doesn't walk on the lot unless he wants to buy." No one's walking on the you know. You so you got to get people on your uh, your lot basically to sample your sample your work, and then those would be the uh, obviously the the target audience to convert because they've already obviously got an interest in this. All right, a couple things about. Um, soccer writing uh that's always fascinating to me because you know i'm a uh, a fan of the sport obviously I don't follow it as closely as you do once hosted a soccer podcast with you incredibly unsuccessfully <laughs> in on my part i would add um but so like i w one of the things that um that i don't really have a feel for just because obviously i'm not covering it is how is access these days grant if you want to try to like interview um forget about Messi. That's not a really good example. But if you wanted to interview, let's say, somebody from Bayern Munich or Bayern Leverkusen or Real Madrid or uh, PSG, like these great super clubs, uh, and they'd obviously be interested in, you know, an American writer doing this because it's a little outside of their um, their sort of domestic audience per se. Like, can you get access like these days or do they close it up? What's the... I have I'm, I'm no doubt you could get it for MLS and, and domestically. That's not really in, sort of an, an issue, I think, for someone in your position. But, like, if you wanted to interview, like, the great stars of the world, like, what kind of access could you realistically get if you were willing to invest and fly to their facility and, and, and make that kind of investment? I think at the very, very highest levels, what I've noticed is I think it's going to be pretty hard for me to get a one-on-one -on -one with Kylian Mbappe right. from PSG right now uh, in a way that I probably would have a better chance uh, with a Sports Illustrated just because you can offer a cover um, or the possibility of a cover right. uh, for a Sports Illustrated. But um so I think it gets a bit more difficult at the really, really highest end. You know, I interviewed Lionel Messi for a cover story back in 2016. Um, and I've interviewed a bunch of the the biggest stars over the years in the soccer space. I would say this, though, like I was able to get Jurgen Klopp, the Liverpool manager, to come on my podcast. That's good. You know, that's just yeah, that's me, you know, so uh, it's not impossible to get really big names to come on. You just have to have maybe some prior relationships or some, uh, you know, people who know who who I am or, or what have you. But uh, I've, I've always also approached it as most of the biggest stars in European soccer, players, coaches, even the clubs themselves want to get bigger in the United States. And so they're often willing to provide American media access that they may not always give their own media over in Europe. And I tried to leverage that 
for years and years at Sports Illustrated. Uh, and to some extent, I'm still doing that. So uh, that part of it is is still fun for me. And, and I think it's it's not something where it's completely unattainable to get a really prominent guest. Yeah, I think that's, interview. I think that's smart. All right, let's finish up on two things. Real quick, who's going to, who, in your opinion, if you had a guess, who's going to get the Premier League rights? NBC would be the one I would uh, lean toward, uh, but there seems to be quite a bit of competition this time around. And I should you know, say, look, I work for CBS now, so I'm probably um, not a, a truly independent voice on this at this point, but um, I've certainly seen the reports that CBS is, is pushing forward as well, yep. ESPN. Um, and who knows about, you know, the sort of the Amazon looming possibility yep. of the Amazons and streamers of the world. So, um, the, the premier league is an interesting one because it's, I, I would say the most popular European domestic league in the United States. And so those rights are worth a lot of money now. And we've seen companies use the Premier League and other soccer leagues as a cornerstone of trying to build their streaming yep. offerings, their pay streaming. So that's what NBC has done with Peacock over the last year or so. Uh, it's what CBS is doing with Paramount Plus and, and the Champions League rights and other rights that they've gotten. And soccer clearly is a is a big part of that that strategy. Yeah, no, the Peacock without the Premier League would be a massive loss. I mean, I feel like that maybe the WWE, those are kind of the two temples for that, for that, for that streaming service right now. So I, I'm with you that I make them the favorite because I think to lose it would be, would be massive. All right, let me finish with this just because I'm, I, now I'm living in Toronto and I'm so into the Canadian men trying to make the world cup for the first time in what feels like forever. They have the best player in CONCACAF in Alfonso Davies, who just, you know, has just he's scored some of the most you know, last couple of uh, rounds. Scored some of the most amazing goals. Obviously, he's this massive star in, at Bayern Munich. So it's just crazy that the Canadians have one of the like the ten best players in the world. It's like it's just sort of insane. Um, the the Mexico leads that group for, with fourteen points right now as we talk. U.S. at eleven, Canada at ten, Panama at eight. Um, if you had to sort of handicap this, um, it would. It would strike me that the U.S. and Canada are in phenomenal positions to make the tournament. But um, interestingly enough, they're sort of very different in that the Canadians have really rolled off a lot of draws, a couple of away draws that have been big for them. And the U.S. has probably had a loss or two that I think is surprising, yet there's always that tantalizing uh, perspective. If you're going to handicap CONCACAF at the moment, what do you what do you expect to happen over the uh, the next couple rounds when these guys play? Well, I think the top three right now are almost, not certainly, but very likely to qualify for the World Cup with the three automatic bids from the region. Mexico, USA, Canada. If Canada makes it, it would be for the first time since World Cup 86. And it is incredible. These are also the three co-hosts of the 2026 World Cup. And obviously the U.S. didn't qualify for the last World Cup. And so... I know U.S. fans have a bit of PTSD from that still. And so when the U.S. lost in Panama recently playing poorly, uh, there was a lot of sky is falling uh, stuff being said. But the U.S. is actually on track to qualify for Qatar. And 
They have good games, they have not so good games, but they're on track to qualify. And there's a lot to be excited about with this U.S. team and the, and the young stars that they're uh, producing these days. Canada, though, pretty incredible. Like you say, Alfonso Davies just scored one of the most ridiculous goals I have ever seen uh, in the last qualifier. He's lighting it up for Bayern Munich. Just a tremendous talent. Uh, and still, I think he's just 20. I, it's crazy to me. And so... Um, I like what Canada's doing, and it's not just Alfonso Davies. they got a lot of solid players on this team. And I think not only will they qualify for Qatar, I think they could actually do something there. And, and, and that's neat to see a national team like that emerge. I really enjoy watching Canada play. They've also gotten results at the United States. They got a tie. And at Mexico, they got a tie. And their schedule has been harder so far than the U.S.'s has been. So I think it's possible that Canada could overtake the U.S., which hasn't played either of its games against Mexico yet, uh, and still has, the U.S. still has to go to Canada in January. I assume that game's going to be in Vancouver, just for weather's sake. And, um, and shoot, I, Canada might not just qualify, but qualify easily. You it'd be, I, you may have actually interviewed this guy maybe a number of times, but I find their coach really interesting, John Herdman, because he coached the Canadian women to a yep. bronze, I think I'm right, bronze medal at the Rio games, then mm -hmm. flipped to the men's team and now has that men's team ascending. Maybe there are other examples of a, of a coach who has coached both women and men's national team and had success on both, but like on the top of my head, I don't know that to be the case. He's just... That's a rare dude in the sport, just given what he's doing. He's a really charismatic guy, John Herdman, and really impressed with what he's doing now with the Canadian men, uh, before with the Canadian women. You know, his former protege, Bev Priestman, yeah, just won led the Canada, Olympic gold. Canada's women to the Olympic gold medal. Yep. So whatever, whatever he's doing, it's really impressive. And I can't think of too many examples, like you say, of coaches who've been successful coaching women and men, especially at the national team level. I mean, Anson Dorrance at one point coached the University of North Carolina women and men, right. but he hasn't coached men's soccer for a really long time. Obviously very successful on the women's side, but in the international game, it's it's pretty unheard of to do that. Last one, Grant, and I'll let you go. You know, um, obviously, you know, I, I, I'm not a disinterested party because um, we work together at The Athletic, but it's very rare to see reporting and the reporting that Meg Linehan and, and Katie Strang did, which really, like, changes the entire complexion of a league, and their reporting on the NWSL did that. I Like, it literally probably has changed that league forever, and I wonder, again, as a longtime soccer journalist, um, what was your perspective on just that story and 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 the resulting fallout from that story. I mean, I can't tell you how impressed I am with Meg Linehan and everything she's done covering women's soccer full time, but writing important stories. So it's important to cover the league and what's going on in the league and the day to day. And she's done great at that. But then these groundbreaking investigative stories like she wrote um, about uh, Paul Riley, the former coach of the NWSL team in, in North Carolina, and accusations of sexual coercion with players over the years. And the trust that Meg Linehan has earned and won with the people that she covers, um, you don't do that type of journalism without being really good at every aspect of your job. So 
uh, she's a star and, and you know, there's a reason I subscribe to the athletic. She's a big reason why, but, uh, can't say enough about Meg. No, we'll take your money. Thank you. We appreciate that. All right. Grant <laughs> wall. Um, so there's a number of ways to get Grant's stuff now. Um, first and foremost, go to Substack and check out his football with Grant wall Substack slash newsletter. He basically just made his pitch here in terms of, um, he's really doing stuff that I, I mean, again, I can't say I'm the biggest Substack expert, but I don't know anybody who's like literally sort of doing this kind of reporting for readers as opposed to, you know, analysis and not to say analysis isn't important stuff like that, but it's a very different thing that he's doing for soccer fans, obviously works for CBS sports and has his podcast, uh, as he mentioned on, uh, uh, Metal Arc Media's platforms. All right, Grant, man, I'm wishing you the best of success, but it seems like things are going really well uh, for you, and it's a great year um, that you're about to head to. I mean, the world, everybody gets excited about the World Cup, as you know. I can tell you from the TV end, like, just so many casual sports fans start paying attention to it, and there, there usually is a conversion of soccer fans after that. It might not be multiple millions, but but it, there's a conversion, and, um, and I think this World Cup is really interesting in particular Let's forget about just the horrible things that are sort of going on to make it happen. But this World Cup is interesting because of what is coming after that in 2026, which will be the biggest moment in soccer, I think, in the in North American history, uh, unquestionably so. So I feel like you're in the beginning of a of a pretty good ascendancy, and and maybe maybe this Substack thing for you really can blow up, and you'll be doing it, um, um, you know, for the for the for this preceding decade, which would be awesome. Um, thanks as always, man, for coming on the sports, uh, media podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Back in the studio. Uh, my thanks to all my, uh, uh, my guests on this podcast, Ken Belson of the New York times, Jamel Hill of, uh, multiple places and Grant wall of multiple places. Uh, I th- three interesting segments. Hopefully, uh, you guys enjoyed them. If uh, you like these kind of conversations, head to the sports media with Richard Deitch, uh, page, whether it's on, uh, Spotify or Stitcher or iTunes. Leave us a five-star review and a nice note if you can. This stuff really helps. Previous podcast or the last couple, ESPN's Jeff Van Gundy on um, the start of the season and uh, what he thinks of Kyrie Irving and many other topics and a sports media roundtable with Kavitha Davidson and Chad Finn. Before that, we had a conversation with Bucks broadcaster Lisa Byington and Sixers broadcaster Kate Scott. They're the first women full-time TV play-by-play broadcasters for a major men's professional sports team. Before that, Conrad Thompson and Jeff Jarrett on creating a successful podcast. Before that, Ken Burns, the famed uh, documentarian. Before that, Gus Johnson and Keith Tlaib of Fox Sports. Hopefully you will find something in that uh, group that you like. My thanks as always to Patrick Antonetti for taking on this podcast, putting uh, a lot of work in for three different guests. My thanks to everybody at Cadence 13. Appreciate their support as always. And mostly thank you to you for listening. We'll see you soon on Sports Media Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.